Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Thanks for being here. My name is Mike Gonzalez. I'm a senior fellow here. Uh, today we're going to be discussing a topic that we really shouldn't be discussing in the second decade of the 21st century. And that is how we continue to use race and ethnicity in university admissions and in gifted and talented programs K-12. It's a stain on our society that our government continues to condone such practice as it does in hiring, government contracting, etc. Our government, in fact, had a hand in creating this mess in the 1970s. Bureaucrats created many of the various ethnic collectives that we have today, such as Hispanics or the one we'll be discussing today at our conference, Asian Americans, and then gave some protected status and others not. That is, it decided which Americans were going to receive benefits and which, which Americans were going to be penalized as a consequence of belonging to a group that had been created. Um, then our government decided through one of its branches, the courts, that the goal of diversity was sufficiently compelling, quote unquote, for race to be considered in admissions. The courts also determined that, quote, the educational benefits that flow from an ethnically diverse student body justifies the use of race in admissions. Now, this idea that educational benefits are to be had from diversity stems from an anti-rational, anti-enlightened belief that there's such a thing as racial knowledge, which stands in opposition to the concept of objective truth. This idea that there are culturally specific facts. This means that I, for example, or anybody, any of you, have perspectives that we bring with our ethnicity, even if, if we've, even if it was an ethnicity created by bureaucrats and activists and was imposed on us, and that I'm supposed to share my lived experience, quote-unquote, with others in the classroom. We're not individuals, in other words, we're mere spokesmen of our assigned group. Knowledge is culturally constructed. Now, these groups were confected by bureaucrats and activists with good intentions, uh, but we can't at the same time ignore the fact that the urge to create identities also responded to a postmodernist view that was that gained, was gaining credence at, uh, throughout academia in the 70s. Postmodernism in critical theory were an attempt to smash the grand narratives that existed at the time, including the Enlightenment idea that individuals are born with natural rights, universal condition that they share with the rest of humanity. Postmodernism thinks that this is not just naive, but also coercive. The supposedly neutral individual of liberal democracy is in fact coded as white, male, and heterosexual. Uh, the attempt to apply liberal norms of equality would risk demanding that the marginalized conform to the identities of the oppressors. Only the monolithic collectives could be able to empower the marginalized by imposing a counter-narrative. 
Now, all these, all these doctrines of meta-narratives and mini-narratives and, and, and counter-hegemony directly influenced the people who created identity politics and the, and the, group, and the identity groups in the 70s. But also, they also had real-life consequences. Um, they produced contradictions. Group proportionalism in a class or an office is impossible to impose without some uh, uh, measure of coercion. The use of quotas, which has been found unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, uh, is, is, uh, leaves those who seek diversity, quote-unquote, in an impossible spot. Proponents of racial preferences say they use, they use race only in a holistic approach. Holistic is this nice Greek word that means everything is taken into account. One of these things is race, which means that race is taken into account in whether to let some Americans in and other, other Americans out. And when you, when you set out to reach diversity, you know, you, you, no group can get too much out of whack in a classroom or anywhere else or an office with the proportion of the base population. This is problematic for a group that represents only 5.6% of the population, such as Asian Americans. And this is why the plaintiffs in the Harvard case make the argument that Harvard and other elite schools are rejecting qualified applicants. What's interesting about this case is that it smashes this whole idea, these meta-narratives and, and hegemonic discourses. These Asian Americans with their high GPAs and SAT scores are first-generation immigrants or the second-generation children of immigrants. They face discrimination. Chinese Americans tell me all the time that people come up to them and say mean things to them. Go back to your country. Indian Americans put up with humiliating jokes, and yet they succeed. Um, but I put to you that the system not only harms people who are kept out, but it harms the people in whose name the system was erected. In three ways, I'll go quickly through them. The one is mismatch theory. You've heard about it if you have not been in a competitive environment uh, in K through 12. All of a sudden, you're thrown into a competitive environment. You're going to not, not be able to compete. You're going to get frustrated, either drop out or change your major. Second one is earned success theory. Uh, if you belong to one of the groups, uh, it, for the rest of your life, people are going to question your achievements. People are going to say, well, you got into Princeton because of your last name of your, or your ethnicity. This is really going to bother you and upset you if you really worked your butt out doing homework. Um, you may even come to believe it, which is even worse. And number three, I've already alluded to, you're there to teach some other kid from Greenwich, Connecticut or so about what it's like to be your group. You become a spokesman of your group. Look, we're not helping anybody with racial preferences. So how do we help them? How do we address what's really holding people down? Of course, racism exists. But equally, of course, we must consider other factors. What make people succeed? I'm just going to put to you briefly, Asian Americans succeed because they have a, uh, they, they practice, the, uh, the, they have practices that we should all emulate. And this is a, a, this is a generalization, of course, because, you know, Asian Americans are all individuals. But if you look at the data, you know, they, 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 they do homework longer than any other groups. They drop out less than other groups. They have intact families more than any other group. Um, we have here a very good panel to discuss all this, and to introduce and moderate the discussion, we have my esteemed colleague, Hans Ponsmakowski. Hans is a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation's Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, 
He's the co-author with also my good friend John Fund of Who's Counting, How Frosters and Bureaucrats Put Your Vote at Risk, and Obama's enforcer, Eric Holder's Justice Department. Before joining Heritage in 2008, Hans served two years as a member of the Federal Election Commission. He worked at the Justice Department, and he is an expert in many, many uh, fields. Please join me in welcoming Hans to the podium. Well, welcome to the Heritage Foundation. Uh, and by the way, on your way in, uh, if you were, did not get it on your way out, you can. We've just published a new paper. It's called Racial Discrimination at Harvard University in America's Elite Institutions. And it talks uh, a great deal about the uh, lawsuit filed against Harvard University, which is about to go to trial. Uh, but it also talks about uh, the discrimination going on at other, at other elite institutions, uh, I'm ashamed to say it's also going on at my former alma mater, uh, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. To talk about this today, uh, we've got four uh, distinguished individuals who are both experts in the law and people who are experienced with what's going on here. And I'm going to uh, introduce all four of them and then let them speak. And uh, gentlemen, you can speak sitting or you can come up to the podium, whichever whichever you would like. Uh, first, to my left, we're going to have John Yu. John uh, Yu is the uh, Emanuel Heller Professor of Law at the University of California in Berkeley, uh, as well as the director of the Korea Law Center and the California Constitution Center. Uh, he clerked for Justice Clarence Thomas and for Judge Lawrence Silverman of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Uh, he was a Deputy Assistant Attorney General at the U.S. Justice Department in the Office of Legal Counsel. And, uh, John, I think you were there about the same time I was at the uh, Justice Department. Uh, he's also a visiting scholar at one of our sister organizations, uh, the American Enterprise Institute, which is another think tank here in Washington. And he's the author of half a dozen books, the most recent of which is Striking Power, How Cyber Robots and Space Weapons Change the Rules of War. Uh, next to John is Roger Clegg, who's the President and General Counsel of the Center for Equal Opportunity. Uh, he's also a former uh, Deputy Assistant Attorney General at the U.S. Justice Department during two different uh, presidential administrations, where he also held the second highest positions in both the Civil Rights Division and the Environment and Natural Resources Division. Uh, he is a graduate of Yale Law School, and I believe the Justice Department has just opened an investigation of the Yale Law School for discrimination, and he has published uh, numerous articles about civil rights issues, and he has a great taste in co-authors, me, me being one of them. <laughs> uh, next is Alan Gura. Uh, Alan is the founder and principal of Gura PLLC, and he is very well known as one of the best Supreme Court litigators in Washington, D.C., he has won landmark constitutional cases, but both before the Supreme Court and Supreme Court and in the ten different courts of appeals that he has argued cases. Uh, he previously served as counsel to the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, Alan, you're probably glad you haven't been at the Senate Judiciary Committee for the past uh, six weeks. Uh, and he was also a former Deputy Attorney General for the State of California. He was actually named one of the. Uh, 100 Most Influential Lawyers in America uh, by the National Law Journal. And finally, we have Alex Chung, uh, founder and president of the Association for Education Fairness, and who is also on the board of directors of the Chinese American Parents Association in Montgomery County. Um, 
He is a mathematician and an actuary by training and a risk manager for a corporation. Uh, but he's here today because of the experience of his family, his three children, and the other parents in the association that he founded with the discrimination that is going on in our education system, not just in colleges, but in K through 12, uh, in this case in Montgomery County. So John, we're gonna start with you. Thank you uh, very much, Hans, for that kind introduction. And uh, thank you to the Heritage Foundation for inviting me to participate in this uh, opportune panel taking place uh, just before the start of the trial uh, against Harvard University for its affirmative action policies. It's uh, really great to be in Washington and not have to talk about Brett Kavanaugh. <laughs> Although I will say in the interest of full disclosure that I did go to law school at the same time as uh, Judge Kavanaugh, and when he uh, graduated, I actually rented, took over his apartment. And so, in case any journalists want to know, I did look under his bed and in his closets, and there was absolutely nothing to be found. <laughs> I have prepared sworn testimony for the Federal Bureau of Investigation about my experience with Judge Kavanaugh and his apartment, but unfortunately, I don't think it's going to help the senators make their decision. Uh, so uh, I just have uh, two quick points, one about the law, which I think uh, Roger and Alan are going to talk more about, and then more uh, something about the politics. Uh, and I'm not uh, speaking as an expert on Asian American politics, but I did think about – I did start actually after the 2012 election writing a book, which I was going to title, Why Are Asians So Stupid? Uh, <laughs> I'll explain in a minute. Uh, but I decided I got taken uh, – my schedule got taken over by other things. So I, I still do want to write this book, and I'll explain the theory of it. I wrote the first chapter of it. I'll explain the thesis of it about affirmative action. But one point about the case law, which Roger is going to go into in more detail, uh, you know, as you probably all know, the Supreme Court uh, up, uh, decided the basic framework for affirmative action in higher education in these cases involving Michigan and Texas. And the test is uh, when the government uses race, the – Government must have a compelling government interest, and that uh, it must use policies which are narrowly tailored to achieving that interest. And until the affirmative action cases, the only other time that the government had upheld, the court had upheld the use of race uh, was in the dreaded Korematsu case, which the Supreme Court has since overruled. And the Korematsu was just overruled this summer. So the only time, this is incredible, that the Supreme Court has allowed the government to use race is in the higher education, not prisons, not the army, not during national emergencies, but in the crucial area of higher education emissions, which I think itself shows that this makes no sense, that this is considered the most important thing in government and in our society is higher education emissions. The second point is the court has really played the role of upholding or striking down these various affirmative action policies based on the second prong, narrow tailoring. Uh, Michael referred, I think, to how offensive actually the compelling government interest idea was, the idea that uh, the compelling government interest in diversity is to provide viewpoint or ideological diversity in the classroom, and the government's allowed to use as a pretext almost or a stand-in for ideological diversity your race, which bases on the assumption then 
that people of certain races all think alike, which uh, I think is just, just as quite offensive um, to, to everybody, not just uh, people of different racial minorities. Just the idea every people of race think certain ways together, I just think is quite wrong. But the up and down of it has been on narrow tailoring. And it seems to me, uh, just my, the, the one contribution I want to make on that debate is that if you read those opinions, the court displays a lot of deference to university professors and administrators. Uh, I think I'm the only one on this panel who has the misfortune to actually being a university professor. And we are the last people who deserve deference from anybody, especially the courts. If you've ever seen how universities run themselves, you would think these are not the people that we should, the courts should defer, should be accepting or giving the benefit of the doubt to when we ask them to explain their policies. Uh, but you don't need to take my word for it. Look at what's been going on on our campuses for the last few years. Does it look like our universities are fostering ideological diversity? Uh, conservative speakers are being hounded off campuses. Uh, there's been even violence and riots to prevent different speakers from not from doing anything violent, from just speaking their minds. Uh, their administrators and faculty have been engaging in ideological discrimination in the hiring of faculty. Uh, there are plenty of faculty administrators who have publicly stated their belief that certain points of view are so offensive that they can be banned from campus because they are hurtful or offensive for students. So my just point I just want to make is it doesn't seem to me that the court's deference to administrators, which I think sits at the foundation of these opinions, is deserved when faculty administrators themselves do not believe in ideological diversity. If that's the case, which I think you can just see from reading the popular press, then I think the case on behalf of firm action collapses. Let me turn second just to the politics, which I hope Mr. Zhang will talk about in more detail. So uh, the reason I wanted to title my book, Why Are Asians So Stupid? The first sentence of the book was something along the lines of Asians are really good at taking tests, but we sure don't know how to vote. Because Asians systematically vote, not just against the American ideal of fundamental fairness. You know, I think Dr. Martin Luther King expressed it best. He said he wanted his children to, for society, treat his children based on the content of their character, not the color of their skin. I think Asians somehow have been persuaded uh, to support policies that deviate from that fundamental norm of fairness in the American character and support uh, affirmative action policies for reasons I have found mysterious. I, I, I don't understand it. If you uh, and part of this was taking off from Norman Podhoritz has this famous book, Why Are Jews So Liberal? Right? He had this famous line, uh, Jews live like Episcopalians, but they vote like Puerto Ricans. Right? So if you were to apply that to Asians, uh, Asians are the most highly educated of the different groups in the American polity. They are the wealthiest. They are also some of the most religiously conservative uh, groups in the American policies, polity. So you could say... Uh, right, that uh, Asians, uh, similarly, they live like they live like Mormons, and they vote like Puerto Ricans. If you were to take off on Port Horitz's line, and yet Asians in the 2012 election, after African Americans were the second highest demographic group to support Barack Obama, more than Hispanics, more than single women, 
more than any other demographic group other than African Americans. In the last election, in the 2016 election, Asian Americans, again, were tied with Hispanics for the second highest demographic group supporting Hillary Clinton. And this is where Brett Kavanaugh ties in. And yet the Democratic Party is the party that appoints justices to the Supreme Court who have been the most vigorous in defense of affirmative action, which is, I think, is one thing Asian families agree on is the one governmental policy they find most harmful to what they value most, which is a fair shot at a seat at a good university. So I do not understand or know why Asians, it's not just that they're voting against their consistent self-interest, but they're voting against uh, this fundamental policy of fairness uh, that most Ameri- the majority, according to polling, the majority of Americans uh, support. So in addition to just throwing in my two bits about don't defer to university administrators, I think Asians shouldn't vote against their self-interest, and they should put aside, you know, Michael was raising the idea of postmodernism. Asians should put aside the false consciousness, which they seem to have been living under for the last 30 years, and vote for uh, support policies and support people to be put into office who are going to point justices to the Supreme Court who end this failed experiment in affirmative action that we've been living under. So uh, thank you very much, and I look forward to the discussion and your questions. Well, I have lots of people to thank, but uh, I want to thank principally uh, the Heritage Foundation for putting on this uh, this, this panel and, and for inviting me and for uh, and for all the other panelists coming. It's really a, uh, uh, a wonderful group. I'm going to give you just a, a brief uh, roadmap of what I'm going to talk about. Uh, I want to discuss two studies that my organization, the Center for Equal Opportunity, has done. Uh, on this, uh, the topic of Harvard's discrimination uh, against Asian Americans. And I should uh, give a shout out right now to uh, Althea Nagai, who's in the audience, uh, who was the, uh, was the author of those studies, and her able uh, editor, uh, Terry Eastland, who's also uh, in the audience today. And then the second thing after I talk about those studies is to talk a little bit about the law and the, uh, you know, the lawsuit that has been brought against Harvard. There is some, um, some overlap in, in, in that I'm going to be talking about uh, uh, the, the legal standards, which John Yu has, has talked about. But I think, you know, for purposes of diversity, uh, it's, it's important that we have more than one view on this because John and I obviously have very different uh, backgrounds. Uh, you've heard that, you know, he's a distinguished scholar and intellectual and has published um, many books and is a professor of law, and, and I'm not. So <laughs> the, uh, the, the two studies that the, the Center for Equal Opportunity has done, and actually I think uh, Hans uh, alluded to, to one of them, uh, the, the, the first one, and uh, that is that if you look at the admissions data, over the past um, couple of decades, it's it's very interesting. Uh, if, if you if you look at Harvard and if you look at uh, Hans's alma mater, MIT, and if you look at Caltech, uh, those are obviously three elite institutions. Um, Caltech is unique, however, in that it does not 
consider race and ethnicity in admissions. Uh, nor does it give a preference to, uh, to the children of alumni. It admits people based on academic qualifications. And what you see if you look at its admissions data is a steady rise in the percentage of Asian Americans who have been admitted. And that makes sense um, because if, if for no other reason than the fact that the percentage of Asian Americans uh, in the United States has grown over the years. And of course, Asian Americans, as, um, as John has, has, has talked about, um, are a, a group that puts a premium on, on, uh, on academic excellence. And so it's not surprising to see that now the uh, percentage of, of uh, the entering class at Caltech is, is something over 40% Asian American. However, when you look at MIT and Harvard over this same period, um, it's very curious. The percentage goes up at first, and then it stops, and then it dips down a little bit, and then it's flat, uh, around 20% or a little under 20%. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination, or you don't have to be paranoid to suspect that, gee, maybe what's going on here is a quota. Uh, that, that Harvard and MIT have decided, uh, as they decide, as Harvard decided with Jews uh, uh, in, the, in the past, that we don't want too many of these people at our university, and we're going to put a cap on it. The second study that that um, uh, uh, Dr. Nagai did looked at the the data that Harvard itself, uh, its Office of Institutional Research generated when it was uh, considering the question of uh, whether or it, it, it was sort of you know, self-scrutiny of its own admissions policies. And basically, it admits that if it looked only at academic credentials, the percentage of Asian Americans who would be admitted would be over 40 percent. Um, and so it, it looked at all kinds of other things that, that might be considered. None of them did the trick of disqualifying uh, Asian Americans, uh, except for one thing. And that is this one variable called personal rating. Uh, and if you consider the personal rating uh, which the admissions office gives, then all of a sudden uh, that results in the percentage of Asian Americans going down to the, you know, around the 20% level. Again, one doesn't have to be uh, unduly suspicious or, or, or paranoid to think that, gee, you know, maybe one of the things that's being smuggled into this personal rating is a desire to keep Asian Americans out. Okay, so those are the two studies that we've done. With respect to the, the lawsuit, uh, let me just give you a little background. The Harvard was sued by an organization called Students for Fair Admissions. Um, it's kind of an interesting background. Originally, this group filed an administrative complaint against Harvard uh, back in the Obama administration. Uh, then later on, they filed an actual lawsuit. The Justice Department has played an interesting role in this. Um, the uh, results of the uh, administrative investigation were sent over to the Justice Department at the beginning of the Trump administration. And the Justice Department decided to open its own investigation. That 
investigation is ongoing. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, the administration has filed a couple of um, documents supporting the, uh, the plaintiffs suing Harvard. One had to do with uh, discovery. The other had to do with whether or not uh, Harvard's motion for summary judgment ought to be denied. Uh, the Justice Department said, yes, Harvard's motion for summary judgment should be denied. Uh, and in fact, it was denied. And we are going to have the trial uh, in this case uh, in, in a couple of weeks you know, this month. I agree with um, everything that Professor Yu said about the, the legal standards in this case. I just want to point out a couple of additional things. It's a little bit odd uh, that, the, that, that, that Harvard is asserting that it, it doesn't discriminate uh, against Asian Americans because, in a sense, it is really undisputed that, you know, because it is considering race and ethnicity, I mean, obviously, you're, if you're considering race and ethnicity and who gets admitted, it must be because it's going to make a difference in who gets admitted and who doesn't. And, I mean, otherwise... Why consider it, right? Uh, and if it does make a difference, then that means somebody's getting discriminated against. That's just <laughs> logic. Um, it's really not disputed that the people getting discriminated against uh, when you weigh race and ethnicity are the groups that are that are overrepresented, which is to say whites and, and Asian Americans, and the groups that are underrepresented, which is to say African Americans and Latinos, are are getting a preference. That really should not be disputed. Uh, and the a lot of the publicity, I think, is really about whether or not, not whether Asian Americans are being discriminated against because of race with respect to uh, African Americans and Latinos, but whether they're being discriminated against vis-a-vis -vis whites. Um, either way, though, I think that, that uh, Harvard should be required to show uh, on its own how the use of racial preferences is advancing the educational, benef uh, the educational benefits that supposedly come from a diverse student body. Uh, this is the compelling interest that, that um, Mike Gonzalez and that, and that John Yu were, were talking about. And I, I agree with, uh, with, with John that uh, you know, the notion that something as ugly as racial discrimination can be justified by something as nebulous as, well, uh, sometimes uh, a, a student is going to say something in class that will be so insightful and brilliant that students of other races will be taught something that they couldn't possibly learn any other way uh, except by these you know, random and um, you know, unpredictable you know, to say that that justifies something as ugly as racial con uh, discrimination is, I think, absurd. In conclusion, I want to make one point, though, which I think is, 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 is important. You know, even if you, you think that, well, gee, you know, Mr. Clegg, uh, you know, he, he, he mocks the, uh, the diversity rationale, but I think that there is something to this, um, this notion that there are educational benefits to having a, uh, you know, some, some degree of racial diversity. I don't think that you can end your inquiry there. And I don't think the court can end its inquiry there. You, know, you can't do a cost-benefit analysis of whether or not something is compelling without considering the costs as well as the benefits. And so I'm going to read, um, you know, this list of costs that I think is inevitable whenever 
a university discriminates on the basis of race and ethnicity. It is personally unfair. It passes over better qualified students. And it sets a disturbing legal, political, and moral precedent in allowing racial discrimination. It creates resentment. It stigmatizes the so-called beneficiaries in the eyes of their classmates, teachers, and themselves, as well as future employers, clients, and patients. It mismatches African Americans and Latinos with institutions, setting them up for failure. It fosters a victim mindset, removes the overall, lowers the overall academic quality of the student body, and creates pressure to discriminate in grading and discrimination. It breeds hypocrisy within the school and encourages a scofflaw attitude among college officials. It papers over the real social problem of why so many African Americans and Latinos are academically uncompetitive. And it gets states and schools involved in unsavory activities, like deciding which racial and ethnic minorities will be favored and which ones not, and how much blood is needed to establish group membership, an untenable legal regime as America becomes an increasingly multiracial, multiethnic society, and as individual Americans themselves are more and more likely to be multiracial and multiethnic. So, like I say, weigh all of those things against the supposed benefits of these random classroom conversations and tell me that those costs don't outweigh those benefits. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me here today. Several years ago, I filed an amicus brief at the Supreme Court in the Fisher One litigation concerning the University of Texas's admissions policies. Uh, I filed this brief on behalf of uh, Jewish and Asian American organizations that sought to explore some of the uh, parallels between the history of exclusion and discrimination uh, visited upon Jewish students uh, in colleges about a century ago and the more modern experiences of uh, Asian Americans today. I'm not going to spend my 10 minutes here uh, reciting my entire brief to you, but I have been asked to at least discuss the historical context of what we're seeing today by reviewing some of um, uh, what the schools had done historically, at least uh, to Jewish students. Um, in 1922, news of Harvard's debate about Jewish restrictions reached China. And an English-language newspaper, the North China Star in Tianjin, published an account of this debate, which led a Harvard alumnus who was locally teaching there, uh, Emmett Russell, to express his displeasure to Harvard President Abbott Lawrence Lowell, the ringleader of some of these anti-Semitic activities. Uh, and in Lowell's paper, we find a copy of that letter. He wrote, uh, articles like this will deter our Chinese students from coming to Harvard and also make them feel that democracy is a failure in America. How present uh, that was. Uh, nearly a century later in Daniel Golden's uh, excellent book, The Price of Admission, uh, the author uh, offered that Asian Americans are the new Jews, inheriting the mantle of the most disenfranchised group in college admissions, the non-academic admission criteria established to exclude Jews from alumni child status to leadership qualities are now used to deny Asians. Now, supporters of race-conscious admissions policies may bristle at any comparison between the supposedly beneficent modern efforts to promote diversity and the historic forms of discrimination and exclusion directed against disfavored minorities, particularly Jews, 
But history reveals no distinction between the modern rationales for discriminatory practices and those invoked uh, years ago to justify quotas in an earlier era. Then, as now, fuzzy notions of character, sociability, leadership, and athletic prowess were utilized to consciously restrict an ethnic group believed to be deficient in these qualities, lest its members overwhelm the schools by virtue of their superior academic performance. Um, echoing modern-day concerns about an excessive number of Asian Americans that might be admitted under purely academic standards, uh, Dartmouth President Ernest Hopkins once warned that, quote, any college which is going to base its admissions wholly on scholastic standing will find itself with an infinitesimal proportion of anything else than Jews eventually. And as late as 1961, a member of Yale's admissions committee reported a reluctance to recruit academically qualified students who would, in all likelihood, be Jews, expressing a reluctance to visit schools such as Brooklyn Tech or Bronx Science or Stuyvesant to New York, uh, because that's where the Jews were. Um, he said, uh, they all have 95 averages and 700 college boards. Do you want to get them stirred up to apply to Yale and then have to turn them down? We could fill all of Yale with them, but we can't, of course. Uh, indeed, the notion that a school can have too many members of a particular race, religion, or ethnicity long predates modern concerns about so-called underrepresentation. According to Robert Corwin, chairman of Yale's Board of Admissions from 1920 to 1933, Yale would, quote, become a different place when and if the proportion of Jews passes a certain as-yet-unknown limit. Uh, and, in fact, uh, schools today devise various mechanisms uh, to increase uh, group race representation for some groups, but we know that uh, these manipulations have gone on uh, in the past. For example, presaging the University of Texas's so-called Top 10 plan, where they admit the top 10% of, of high school students in, in the various schools in Texas, Harvard sought to diversify its enrollment and reduce its number of Jews by adopting a policy of admitting the top 7th of qualifying school classes, and when that plan backfired, Harvard suspended its operation in heavily Jewish areas as part of its restrictive program. Yale Dean Clarence Mendel left a meeting with Harvard's admissions committee chairman one time with the understanding that, quote, they are going to discontinue, for the East at least, the first seventh arrangement, which is bringing in as high as 40% Jews. They are simply, they are also going to reduce their 25% Hebrew total to 15% or less, by simply rejecting without detailed explanation. They are giving no details to any candidate any longer. Um, now, the um, uh, throughout this era of restrictive uh, anti-Semitic practices, there had never been any doubt of Jewish students' academic qualifications. And to the contrary, as with Asian Americans today, Jews were viewed with disdain for being too academically successful, as it was their academic success that threatened to squeeze out the sons of the WASP establishment. According to Yale Dean Frederick Jones, Quoting here, undergraduates would no longer compete for first honors because they did not care to be a minority in a group of men of higher scholarship record, most of whom are Jews. Okay. And as with Asian Americans today, the knock against Jews was that their uh, academic achievement allegedly came at the expense of sociability. Here's uh, 1914 Columbia Dean Frederick Keppel. One of the commonest references that one hears with regard to Columbia is that its position at the gateway of European immigration makes it socially uninviting to students who come from homes of refinement. The form which the inquiry takes in these days of slowly dying race prejudice is, isn't Colombia overrun with European Jews who are most unpleasant persons socially? Okay. Uh, reflecting a common view of his day, Yale's Corwin believed 
that too many Jews lacked, quote, manliness, uprightness, cleanliness, native refinement, etc., and that Yale had, quote, about all of this race that it can, ha- it can well handle beyond the, quote, saturation point. Now, the perpetrators of Jewish restrictions may not have had Asian Americans in mind, but they acknowledged that their discriminatory practices could effectively be used to target other groups, including Asian Americans. Harvard President Lowell, again, the driving force behind the restrictive Jewish quotas, viewed sociability as a pretext, proposing limitations upon, and here I'm quoting, any group of men who did not mingle indistinguishably with the general stream, let us say Orientals, colored men, and perhaps French Canadians, if they did not speak (laughs) English and kept themselves apart, or we might limit them by making the fact uh, that men do not so mingle one of the causes for rejection above a certain percentage, this would apply to almost all, but not all, Jews, possibly, but not probably, to other people. Um, now, today, affirmative action proponents will strenuously avoid any suggestion that they're implementing a quota system, but then those who consciously restricted uh, Jewish enrollment likewise rejected the language of hard quotas in favor of fuzzy criteria. Uh, even in the 1920s, sensibilities would not allow people to outwardly say that they were going to impose a quota, but uh, nonetheless, this was obviously the, the undercurrent. Uh, when Lowell imposed at Harvard a quota on the number of Jews receiving scholarships, instructing that, quote, the percentage allotted to Jews in their first year at Harvard should not exceed the percentage of Jews in the freshman class, uh, the school implemented the directive by adopting a character test. And uh, he offered that um, while awards would continue to be made Primarily on the basis of high scholarship, holders also had to be men of approved character and promise. Turning to the problem of allegedly excessive Jewish enrollment, Lowell noted that, quote, the faculty and probably the governing boards would prefer to make a rule whose motive was less obvious on its face by giving to the Committee on Admission authority to refuse admittance to persons who possessed qualities described um, with more or less distinctness and believed to be characteristic of the Jews. The faculty should understand perfectly well what they are doing and that any vote passed with the intent of limiting the number of Jews should not be supposed by anyone to be passed as a measurement of character really applicable to Jews and Gentiles alike, close quote. Now, Harvard Faculty Committee met to consider some of these uh, principles. Uh, uh, President Lowell told them in no uncertain terms that there uh, could be no doubt that the primary object in appointing this special committee was to consider the question of Jews. Uh, and um, uh, nonetheless, uh, this committee uh, rejected the measures to limit Jewish enrollment, so President Lowell did, of course, uh, the obvious thing. He formed another committee, uh, which was more accommodating to him, which would study and, and in fact, uh, implement uh, a cap on the class size. Um, and, uh, of course, the, the total enrollment at Harvard was not believed to be a problem, Lowell did not believe that a cap was otherwise necessary. He wrote, we are in no present danger of having more students in college that we can well take care of, nor apart from the Jews is there any real problem of selection. The present method of examination giving us for the Gentile a satisfactory result. Um, and so the, uh, the the quotas were adopted through, uh, through other means. Now Lowell insisted that he was not proposing uh, discrimination against Jews, but rather, quote, discrimination among individuals in accordance with the probable value of college education to themselves, to the university and the community, uh, also adding that a very large proportion of the less desirable upon this basis are at the present time the Jews. So we see some of these same uh, ideas um, uh, implement themselves today. 
Um, uh, student papers, of course, at the time, uh, then uh, as now, applauded uh, uh, these policies. This was uh, designed to, of course, make sure they had more wholesome people at schools. Um, the Yale Daily News, for example, endorsed the idea of greater admission rest uh, restrictions and subjectivity uh, as, quote, continuing the same scholastic basis for admission. Yale will soon reach the sorry state where her sons will be mere brain specimens, where Yale graduates will find no room for what children of theirs are not abnormal. Um, uh, Yale's admission policy should include, quote, more consideration of the character, personality, promise, and background of the individual in question. Yale must institute an Ellis Island with immigration laws more prohibitive than those of the United States government. Uh, and on and on it went. Now, uh, uh, finally, uh, I should note, um, just as Asian Americans today sustain a disproportionate admissions burden in the name of diversity, so too were Jews restricted at one time in the name of diversity and balance. Harvard Provost Paul Buck declared that the school's goal of achieving admissions balance was threatened by the large metropolitan public high schools of New York and New Jersey, from which 95% of the applicants for Harvard are one category. Bright, precocious, intellectually overstimulated boys, and quote, the larger private schools from these same states are no better, weighted with the delicate literary type boys who don't make the grade socially with their better balanced classmates, who in turn head for Yale or Princeton. Um, and so he continued, in contrast to these floppy ducklings, Harvard should seek out sturdy young men of the healthy extrovert kind, so much admired by the American public. Close quote. Now, notwithstanding their relative academic weakness, such applicants must be admitted to create, quote, a student body balanced in its composition and its potentialities for later contribution to all phases of American life. Now, of course, some uh, Jewish people uh, were, were not in agreement with this type of, of, uh, of thinking. Responding to a Jewish alumnus's letter pointing out apparent discrimination, Yale President Charles Seymour explained that to remain, quote, a truly national institution representative of the country as a whole may in certain circumstances involve some temporary restriction on the numbers selected from one or another of the nation's population groups in order to prevent distortion of the balanced character of the student body. Um, uh, limitations on the number from particular groups would sometimes be necessary to keep the various elements in incoming classes in some rough approximation to the proportions which obtained throughout the national population. Uh, as uh, President Lola put it, Harvard could not accept more Jews than it could, quote, effectively educate, close quote, in the ideas and traditions of our people, experience seems to place that proportion at about 15%. Um, now, uh, indeed, the uh, underqualified uh, minorities that diversity was originally perceived to assist were not blacks or Hispanics, but Protestant prep school legacies. Um, as uh, late as 1960, a Harvard admissions report defended giving prep school candidates preferential admissions treatment on the theory that, quote, gifted students obtain a better education by living in an undergraduate population representing a wide variety of school backgrounds. Moreover, private school students contribute a great deal to the intellectual atmosphere of Harvard, even though many of them are, quote, not oriented toward academic or professional training and so are not interested in striving for degrees with honors. Um, uh, this rationale, of course, uh, was contrary to the widely held belief that Jews and Gentiles were socially incompatible, but little else could rationalize discriminatory intent. Now, today, I think the notion that Harvard should loosen its academic standards to admit more uh, otherwise unqualified WASPs so that high-achieving minorities might have the benefit of their interaction 
with such people would strike many university administrators as absurd. Yet that was the ultimate logic of limiting Jewish enrollment not long ago, and that rationale is identical to that advanced by proponents of race-conscious admission standards, only with different groups occupying the same variables. Thanks. Thank you for having me here. Ladies and gentlemen, you have heard today about the Harvard lawsuit. Now I will tell you what's happening in Montgomery County, Maryland, next to the nation's capital. As a father of three children, I'm very concerned. I'm concerned about the quality of the education my children will get. I'm also concerned about whether they will get fair treatment in the future. I live in Montgomery County. It's one of the wealthiest counties in this country. And our public school system was also considered top large in the nation. My children used to come home from school complaining about how school was boring. When they got into the gifted and talented programs, they finally started enjoying school life. Just when I was happy that their educational needs were met in GT program. We started hearing about the notion that Asian American students were overrepresented in the gifted and talented program, and the reform was necessary to fix racial imbalance. Today, I will share with you what I have observed, and I hope more and more people understand such reform or policy change did harm to our children, to our school system, and to the future of our country. Two years ago, in March 2016, Montgomery County Public Schools, uh, abbreviated as uh, MCPS, published the METIS report titled, quote, Study of Choice and Special Academic Programs Report of Findings and Recommendations, close quote. Recommendation 3A in this report recommend, recommended using non-cognitive criteria and group-specific norms to benchmark students. Many parents immediately sensed the smell of racial discrimination and racial quota in the proposed form. Subsequently, MCPS held three community dialogue meetings to hear feedbacks. Hundreds of parents attended this hearing and strongly opposed the recommendation 3A. Many held handmade signs like one standard for all and low 3A. MCPS brushed off our oppositions. In February 2018, Many parents, including me, were shocked to get a letter denying our children's admission to the gifted program, which is called the Magnet Program for Middle School Students. Not only because these parents had been very confident about their high-achieving children, but also because the MCPS didn't provide any clear explanation of the rejection. 
I heard that many students in the 99 percentile were denied. All the denial letters to the parents said exactly the same thing. MCPS claimed that the local middle schools will meet the students' need, although in reality, the local schools are definitely not adequately equipped in curriculum, GT class teachers, and funds to satisfy the high-achieving students' educational need. We were given seven days to appeal. I spent over 20 hours talking to teachers, principals, and fellow parents. I learned that MCPS held a meeting concerning the reform with teachers who summarized the takeaway message in the following way. Number one, the reform was to fix the so-called racial imbalance in the GT programs. Number two, from now on, the teacher's input wouldn't be considered in the admission process. Unfortunately, my appeal with 11 pages of solid evidence was rejected. My friends and I compared the notes and found out we were all sent the same form. None of the specific points that other parents or I raised were addressed. Altogether, I spent over 100 hours preparing appeal three times, but I failed without knowing why. With lots of doubt about the admission and the appeal process, I requested admission data. However, nobody in MCPS would satisfy my request. They even stopped showing the median score of the admitted students. Why did they do that? We seriously suspect there was discrimination or unfair process going on in the selection and the appeal steps. Since we couldn't solve this issue in the framework of MCPS, starting in April, seven friends and I filed a complaint to Department of Education. On April 24th, MCPS finally published the racial makeup of admitted students in the magnet programs. We can say that the admission of Asian American students had decreased by an astonishing 20% consecutively in the last two years. This explains why so many Asian American families were shocked at the rejection. MCPS never showed any concern with what's happening to us. On April 30th, MCPS had a public meeting with parents. Many concerned parents asked about the admission criteria and the formula. The MCPS representative, Ms. Laurie Christina Webb, an MCPS director who led the project, answered that there was no criteria. She just said it was a holistic approach, but didn't introduce how holistic re review was conducted. I have been told that MCPS received over 200 data requests 
for admission data and MCPS granted none of them. With what we observed, we are very concerned that whether MPS use reverse discrimination in the admission process and the education system in a clumsy attempt to close the achievement back, achievement gap. Even though what they are doing does nothing to really address the achievement gap. We, as parents, have exhausted all the possible means to communicate with MCPS. Thus, we formed a group named Association for Education Fairness. Given what has happened and how Asian parents have reacted to all this, many of us are further shocked that there has not been any balanced coverage in the mainstream media. For example, Bethesda Magazine called the reform a success. Its report mentioned the admitted Hispanic and African-American students increased, but ignored completely two consecutive big decrease in Asian-American students. What's worse, it did not mention anything about how concerned and angry parents opposed such a reform. Meantime, we do notice that similar incidents are happening in other places. In New York City, Major Bill de Blasio said, there are too many Asian American students in these specialized high schools, and he proposed to get rid of the selection exam. And then there's the Harvard lawsuit that has been already discussed here, discussed here today. Thus, we are very concerned that what we are seeing is a rational trend, which is to implement racial discrimination in the name of correcting racial disparity. What will the U.S. get with such a rational trend? Such practice will not solve any problem, but only make the situation worse. It punishes honest hard work. Many students were penalized only because of their skin color. People are divided by race and treated differently with the approval of public schools. It also creates friction among different ethnic groups. It will become a lose-lose situation. Worse situation will do harm to American in a long run. If we're American, is the first to travel to the mass. Who cares the race of the astronaut? We all share Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s vision. Quote, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. We, Association for Education Fairness, also believe that the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. Quoted by John Roberts Jr. Thank you.
All right, we've, we've, we've run a little long, but I, I will uh, allow just a couple of questions um, before we end the session. And I would ask you to do two things. One, wait for the microphone to come because this is being broadcast over the Internet. Uh, second, please identify who you are and please ask a question. <laughs> yes, sir. Wait for the microphone right here. Name's Dave Lonstock, member of public. Um, I was bringing up the point about, you know, the Ivy League schools, you know, discrimin discriminating on the basis of, of race and the Asians and that. Question I have is, um, do you, are the Ivy, are the Ivy, are the secular, private, nonprofit Ivy League schools treated the same under government law as the, you know, conservative religious Universities we have in this country, like in the Bible Belt and that kind of thing, you know, Liberty, um, Regent University, uh, uh, you know, uh, Samford, uh, Wheaton, all that, um, are they treated exactly the same way? And if they are, then d d d d d does Harvard have just as much right to discriminate against those who don't meet, meet their the values and beliefs at Harvard has the conservative religious schools have a right to discriminate against those who don't meet according to their beliefs. Since the Civil Rights Acts not only prohibit discrimination on the basis of race, but also religion and I think also gender. So um, that that's I guess I agree. number one. And you know, uh, I mean, uh, if a if an anti-gay or you know anti-feminist conservative is not allowed to speak on Harvard. Uh, does that does that mean that's a uh, uh, pro uh, choice on abortion, pro uh, you know feminist uh, pro uh, is not also not allowed to speak at Catholic University of America, for example? I, I get you, I get you, uh, and that's a very interesting question. Uh, the answer is a little bit complicated, but I'll give you a, a short answer. Um, the short answer is that with respect to racial discrimination, which is you know what we're talking about right. today. Uh, as long as a school, I mean, basically all schools are treated the same under federal law. Um, you're, whether you're a state school, in which case the Equal Protection Clause uh, applies, or whether you're a private school, if you get federal money, uh, or even a private school that doesn't get federal money because of uh, a, another federal statute, I think that they're all prohibited from discriminating on the basis of race. Uh, the rules are different. Uh, with respect to uh, to sex and to and, and religion, um, you know, state schools are not allowed, you know, to discriminate on the basis of, of either one of those categories. But private schools are, you know, by and large. Um, you know, if you're a religious school, you can, you know, Catholic universities can discriminate in favor of Catholics and and and, and so forth. But the kind of discrimination that we're talking about today uh, is illegal for any university. And, and I, I should just mention, I mean, the the. The Civil Rights Act, um, under which the, the statute, the, the lawsuit's been filed, uh, even though Harvard is a private institution, uh, the lawsuit claims that these rules apply to Harvard because it gets federal money both directly and indirectly. If you receive federal money, then you have to comply with the, the Civil Rights Act. And actually, the, the, the Civil Rights Act is even more explicit in uh, banning racial discrimination than the Constitution is. And it's, uh, it's unfortunate that this, uh, loophole, you know, for diversity has been created. It should never have been recognized, particularly, uh, for the, I mean, it shouldn't have been recognized constitutionally, but certainly should not have been recognized, uh, as a matter of that, the federal statute that, that Hans is talking about. I have a small question for Roger, actually, on this point, which is, 
if you're the Trump administration and you have already concluded, as I think they have in the litigation, that Harvard is discriminating on the basis of race, could the why doesn't the Trump administration just cut off all federal funding to Harvard right now? Because it's in violation of the Civil Rights Act. Well, they could do that. Um, now, I think what would happen then is that Harvard would sue, uh, and you know we would we would have the lawsuit, you know, uh, you know, still. But uh, there would Harvard would lose whatever it is, six hundred million dollars, right, right away, which would give Harvard an incentive to change its emissions policies. Well, and that's why, you know, I think it's a very promising development, as, you know, Hans alluded to this, that the not only is the Justice Department investigating Harvard, but it's also announced in the last couple of weeks that it's investigating Yale as well. And I think that all schools that get federal money are on notice now that they need to uh, reevaluate their admissions program. I'm just being self-interested because, you know, Berkeley, since we live under Prop 209, we don't use race. Right. And our emissions criteria. So all that grant money could come to Berkeley now instead of Harvard. And it's <laughs> seriously mismanaged and wasted. I'm, I'm all for giving you a raise. I think that's a good idea. Right over here, sir. <laughs> and then after that, I'm sorry, we, just one more question because we're, we're way past. <clears throat> Hi, Carl Golovin, Domain Reference and IdealLivesOn.net. My question is drawn from two sources. A uh, audio recording found at archive.org of a man named Benjamin Friedman who spoke at uh, the Willard, Willard Hotel here in D.C., In 1961, he was then 71 years old, a lifelong Jew, converted late in life to Roman Catholicism, very prominent in the Wilson administration, also uh, gives a great context on the Balfour uh, Declaration, etc., and a a book, uh, The 13th Tribe by Kessler. And there's an argument concerning, well, discrimination against Jews that, and uh, uh, Mr. Gura, perhaps you're best able to answer this, you were born in Israel, I gather, and even scholars in Israel tend to agree uh, that genetically, 95% of people purporting Judean ancestry aren't actually Semitic in their genetic makeup. That there was a, a uh, Asiatic tribe known as the Khazars uh, that that between 700 and 1100 converted to Judaism to avoid being compelled to convert to either. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to address anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Thank well, you. No, they're, they're, no they're, that's, that's, that's ridiculous. <laughs> the, the archaeological record in Israel is is. Uh, Replete with evidence of the fact that the Jewish people are indigenous to Israel, Hebrews. Judeans are absolutely. Yes. Listen, I'm not going to get into this with you. That's just lunacy. No, just a fast. Let's get another question. Perspective. It's a waste of time for everybody. My name is AJ Kutari. I'm actually um, one of the directors of. You mentioned Yale uh, case, and I'm one of the one of the board members for the organization which filed a complaint uh, called Asian American Coalition for Education. Um, Mike, uh, and also we are having a, uh, I guess this is not a question, but I'll ask the question after this. Uh, We are having a demonstration on October 14th in Boston uh, against the, you know, for the Howard B. filed the amicus brief and having demonstration. Anybody, anybody who can, Walk over to Boston. <laughs> Welcome to do that, please. Uh, the question I have is, um, uh, I'm sorry to bring up Judge Kavanaugh here, but uh, one of the questions asked by Senator Pamela Her- um, Kamala Harris was, uh, after you know a long uh, um, uh, sting, uh, was uh, when when Judge Kavanaugh said that after 100 years we'll hope that we'll have a completely raceless society. And that's what I'm looking forward to, et cetera. And Kamala Harris at that time said that, would that, does that mean that at that point in time, 
they would uh, you would not have any benefits for certain ethnic mi- certain minorities and i presume she meant uh, african americans or latin latinos or something like that isn't that going exactly the opposite like you are not you are exactly the opposite of what uh, martin luther king said you are not you don't want to uh, do this based on the content of the character you want to do it based on the color of the skin isn't it going exactly the opposite and can someone not tell her that uh, that this is an idiotic idiotic statement well you know i i i agree with you and uh, uh i think a lot of people are telling her that but she doesn't she doesn't want to want to want to hear that um I'll just make one, you know, quick note that the Supreme Court said uh, in its Scruder decision that it expected this to come to an end in 25 years. Um, you know, the problem is that universities yeah, – we're, we're halfway through that. Right? We're more than halfway there, and uh, I don't think that, that, that schools are moving in that direction. And, in fact, you know, the, the Harvard discrimination was, was around – it was cited in the, in the Bakke case, and as best I can tell – the only thing that Harvard has done since the Bakke case is to ramp up its discrimination against Asian Americans. You know, that's the direction that universities are headed in if they're left to their own devices, unfortunately. Yeah, and, and I should just say, and then we have to end this, um, one of the points that's made in this lawsuit, and if you haven't read the motions for summary judgment, you should. It's very interesting evidence in there. The, the character assessment that Harvard put in in the 1920s in order to be able to use that to keep Jewish students out, the evidence produced in this case shows that they are using that exact same character assessment now against high-achieving, highly qualified Asian-American students to give them a low character rating so they can keep them out. They're using exactly the same plan that's called the Harvard plan, and they are doing it along with numerous other universities. So please, please give another round of applause to our speakers.